I want to talk to you about what I believe to be one of the greatest problems that we Christians face. It is something that dilutes our love for Christ. It also causes us to withhold grace to our brothers and sisters, especially when they fail. It also causes us to withhold grace and mercy to ourselves. And that problem is guilt. Many of God's people suffer with a guilt complex. They have a constant sense of condemnation, unworthiness. Now, if I were to survey all of you here and ask you, does God love you? And you would, of course, say, God loves me. I'm one of His favorites. But in the hours where you are alone and you get in touch with those parts of you that are the most honest, many of you would say, I'm not really sure the Lord really loves me. Yeah, I know it in my head. The Bible says it, but I don't feel it. And I doubt it. So I want to talk about that. And I'll tell you why it's important. Because the only way that you and I could love the Lord like He ought to be loved and like He wants to be loved is for us to be set free of all guilt. It is when we have a sense of guilt and condemnation, I call it the Christian hangover, where we have this sense of unworthiness. As long as that's still breathing in our hearts, love for Jesus Christ will always wither. And you know, the Lord wants to be loved. Beyond everything else, He wants to be loved. Just like you want to be loved. And so consequently, the question then becomes, how can we who are visible, physical, material, love a God we can't even see? And I would suggest to you that the secret to that question, the answer to that question is to have an eye-opening, unveiling, where we see, like never before, that Jesus Christ is out of His head in love with us as an individual, despite our failures, despite our mistakes, despite our sins, despite all the stuff we may have done in our life. And so that's what I want to do this morning. Pull the curtain back and give you a glimpse, just a glimpse of this incredible Christ and the love that He has for you and me. The way I'm going to do this is we are going to look at Jesus Christ through the eyes of Simon Peter. And then we're also going to look at Simon Peter through the eyes of a self-righteous, judgmental Christian. Now, I realize there are only one or two of those kind of Christians on the planet today. Thank you for laughing. That was a joke. But because they do exist, I want to look at Peter through the eyes of a self-righteous, judgmental Christian and then look at him through the eyes of your Lord. So I'm going to tell the story in a series of scenes, kind of like a movie script, and when I get to the punchline, I hope that the veil will be pulled back and you will have a renewed love for your Lord and the sense of guilt that you've been carrying around, you may not even realize you've been carrying it around, will dissipate. All right, so here we go. Scene one. Jesus climbs a high mountain and he tells his disciples, get in a boat, go over to the other side, I'll meet you there. So they do. And they're in the Sea of Galilee. 
and it's evening, and all of a sudden, a ferocious storm hits the sea. And they don't have flares, and they don't have iPhones, and they don't have Androids. They're in the middle of the sea, four or five miles out, and they're terrified. And the boat is rocking, and water is gushing into the boat. And they're afraid it's going to tip over. And this goes on for hours, where they're fighting the storm. And now it's 4 a.m., about the time that Otto wakes up, so I'm told. And it's pitch black, and the disciples can't see anything. But suddenly, they catch a glimpse of a creature who's in the middle of the sea walking toward them. And they're mortified. And the scripture says they scream out. They think it's a ghost. Someone once said, scratch a Christian and you'll find out someone who is very superstitious underneath. And in their fear and in their terror, as this creature continues to walk toward them, a voice comes from this creature walking on water. And the voice says, be not afraid, it is I. And it's the Lord Jesus Christ walking on water. And Peter, Simon Peter, impulsive, impetuous, rash, says, Lord, if it's you, call to me. And Jesus does. He says, come. And for the first time in history, and perhaps the only time in history, at least in the New Testament, we have a human being other than Jesus Christ who's literally walking on water. Someone once said, Peter really didn't walk on water. He just knew where the rocks were. No, he was walking on water. But you know the story. He started to look at the waves that were beating against his legs and he lost sight of Jesus and he was looking at the storm and then he began to sink. And then the Lord Jesus Christ reached out his hand because one wonderful thing about Peter is he had the sense enough to say, Lord, save me. And Jesus pulls him up and then he says, why did you doubt? Why didn't you have faith? I said, come. And I can hear the voice of the self-righteous, judgmental Christian, Peter, you're a man of doubt. Here, you're one of the Lord's 12 disciples. You live with them. You watch them eat and sleep. You watch them wake up in the morning. And you're a man of doubt. You're double-minded. Sad example of a Christian. Scene two. Simon Peter, to his credit, is asked a question by the Lord. The Lord asked all the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus has very flattering things to say about this confession of faith. And then the Lord says, it's time that I tell you, very soon, the religious leaders are going to take me and they are going to kill me. And Peter takes the Lord aside, he privately rebukes Jesus. And he says, never, Lord. That will never happen. You're not going to be taken. You're not going to die. And Jesus immediately says to him, Satan, get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not voicing the words of God, but the words of man. Whoa. And then he says, Anyone who will follow me must take up his cross and deny himself. What was happening there? 
Jesus knew he had to go to the cross. It was one of the reasons why he came. But no human being wants to go to the cross. None of us want to die. None of us want to lay our lives down. What operates in us is self-preservation. We want to save our life. And when Jesus heard Peter say that, it was offensive to him. Because there was a part of him, being human, that didn't want to die. And so instead of being encouraged to do what the Lord God Father had called him to do, here Peter's standing in the way. And so Jesus was saying, you're a stumbling block to me. Get out of the way. And I can hear the self-righteous, judgmental Christian saying, you know, Peter, you really are a mess. Here you are rebuking Jesus Christ. Who rebukes Jesus Christ? You are being used as a tool of Satan and a stumbling block to the God of creation. Pitiful. Scene three. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to a high mountain and something amazing happens. Before their eyes, Jesus is transformed. He's transfigured. His face is shrouded in shimmering light. It becomes so bright that the disciples have to look away. They can't stand the strength of the brilliant light emitting from His face. And His garments turn brilliant white. And they're sitting here watching this and all of a sudden, two other men appear on the Lord's right and left. It's Moses and Elijah. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Moses and Elijah had very unusual deaths. The death of Moses is shrouded in mystery. We really don't know what happened. And Elijah never died. He was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven. And here they are talking to Jesus. And it's Peter, James, and John, and they are just marveling. And Peter doesn't know what to say, but he feels he has to say something. So he says, Lord, it's so great for us to be here. Let's build a shelter for all three of you. And as he's talking, the Scripture makes it very clear, as he's speaking, the Father from heaven interrupts him and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to Him. And <laughs> the disciples are terrified, and so they fall on their faces. Well, they lift their heads, they squint, Moses and Elijah are gone. The light is gone. And Jesus says, be not afraid. And He touches them and they rise to their feet. What was happening here? This was a preview of the second coming of Christ in His glory and in His kingdom. And they got a front row seat watching this. And Moses represents the law. And Elijah represents the prophets. And here is Jesus Christ one who is greater than the law, one who is greater than the prophets, one who supersedes the law, one who supersedes the prophets. And what Peter was doing is he was wanting to make all three of them equal. He was wanting to put them all on the same level. Let's make three shelters for three of you. And the father would not have it. And he interrupted him and said, listen to my son, hear him. And so I can hear the voice of the self-righteous, judgmental Christian. Peter, you have no spiritual discernment at all. You get a front row preview of the second coming of Christ, and what do you do? You feel you have to say something, and you say the most
stupid thing that ever can be said, and God the Father from heaven has to interrupt you. Well, scene four, a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's very desperate, and he says, what do I need to do to receive eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And the ruler says, well, I've done all that. Jesus said, well, you lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler dropped his head and walked away sad because he could not part with his riches. And then Peter says, Lord, we're not like the rich young ruler. We've sold everything. I've left my wife at home. I got rid of my fishing business. And I'm following you. What's in it for me? What do we get? We've all left everything behind. And incidentally, let me just say this, that Jesus was not teaching salvation by works when He spoke to the rich young ruler. He was putting His finger on the idol in the man's life. His riches were the idol that He served. And so Jesus is very tender. He responds to Peter. He was so gentle and patient with this frail, presumptuous man. And he says, Peter, every person who has left family and property for my sake will receive a hundredfold in this life and eternal life in the future. But it will come with tribulation. And then he said, but the last shall be first and the first last. And he told a parable about what that meant. And that was a subtle rebuke to Peter. And I can hear the voice of the self-righteous, judgmental Christian saying, Peter, you are a selfish man. You're not following the Lord for the Lord's sake. You're in it for what you can get out of it. And before we get too hard on Peter, let me just say that there will come a time in your life, if it hasn't come already, where something will happen and the ulterior motives as to why you're serving the Lord are going to be revealed. And you're going to really assess whether or not you're following Jesus Christ because you expect Him to do something for you or for His own sake. But the self-righteous, judgmental Christian puts Peter under the pile of guilt and says, you don't love the Lord. This is all about you. God owes you. That's what you think. Well, let's go to the next scene. Scene 5. Jesus says, Tonight, all of you are going to depart from Me. All of you are going to disown Me. He's talking to His disciples. And Peter, reckless Peter, rash Peter, blurts out, Not Me. Even if all the other eleven disown you, I will never disown you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And Jesus says to Peter, you don't know what you're saying. In fact, you will disown me very soon. And when you hear the, the rooster crow, you will have disowned me three times. And Peter rejects what the Lord is saying. It blows his circuitry. No, I'm sorry, Lord, you're mistaken. That's <laughs> not going to happen. And Jesus said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And the self-righteous Christian says, Peter, 
You don't know what's in your heart. You're so cocksure. You're so self-confident. You're so full of pride. Here the Lord is telling you you're going to deny Him. You don't know yourself. Well, the next scene is Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. This is where the weight of the cup that the Father had given Jesus was, was upon the Lord. He felt the weight of it. He had to deal in His own heart with surrendering to death. And beyond surrendering to death, he was surrendering to torture. And it was very difficult for the Lord to do this. So he took his disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he left the rest of them behind. He said, pray, lest you enter into temptation. And he takes Peter, James, and John, he goes a little further, and he says to them, Brothers, I want you to pray. Stay up with me. This is my darkest hour before what's to come. Wait with me. Watch with me. And then he goes a little further and he falls on the ground and he begins to deal with the Lord, his Father, to deal with his heart, his motives. It's agonizing. It's conflicting because his will was not to go to the cross. The Father's will was that He die. And eventually we know Jesus aligned His will with the Father's. But it was so agonizing, it was so intense that He sweat great drops of blood as He was praying. And at some point after an hour, He goes to where Peter, James, and John are and they are sleeping. And Jesus addresses Peter. Peter, wake up! You couldn't stay awake for an hour and pray with me and stand with me. I need your support. I need your help. And the Scripture says this happened three times. The Lord went back further, prayed alone, came back, and they're sleeping. He did it three times. And so I can hear the voice of the self-righteous, judgmental Christian saying, Peter, you're a carnal, fleshly man. Hear the Lord Jesus Christ at His darkest hour before the cross. He needs your support. He needs your help. And what are you doing? You're sleeping. You're dreaming. You're snoozing. I think Jesus made a mistake by calling you to be one of His disciples. Had to have. I mean, you're just a pile of failures one after the other. Well, the next scene. They're still in the garden and now a group of servants from the Jewish high priest appear in the garden, and they're armed. And Judas gives a kiss to Jesus, a kiss of betrayal. And Peter, now he's awake, and he sees what's happening, and he reacts. He takes out his Roman short sword, and he wails on one of the servants who is armed, and he cuts off his right ear. And Jesus steps in, takes control of the situation, gives a gentle rebuke to Peter, heals the man's ear. And I can hear the self-righteous, judgmental Christian. Peter, not only are you fleshly, not only are you carnal, not only are you selfish, you're violent. You're a violent man, and here you're following the Prince of Peace. Well, 
to the next scene. Scene eight is the blackest of all. I don't care what any of you have done in your life. I don't care what regrets you carry. I don't care what sins you've committed, mistakes you've made. None of us will ever trump what Peter did in this next scene. Jesus had the strongest words to say about it. He said, he who denies me before men, I will deny before the Father in heaven. Whoa. And so, Jesus is taken. He's brought to the high priest's quarters. What the Lord said about strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, well, they all scattered. Except for John, the apostle, and the women. Now, sisters, this should encourage you. There were women who followed Jesus just like Jesus had the twelve. He had a group of women. And they were the most faithful of His disciples. They stayed with Him during everything. The trial, the crucifixion, they watched Him die. When the men checked out, they were there. They even were following Him after He was dead. They went to His burial to care for His body. Sisters, it was the women who were the most faithful disciples that Jesus ever had. Now that should encourage you. Well, John is there. He's watching. Peter is there. He's watching. He doesn't know what to do. And it's cold. He sees a fire there in the courtyard. The high priest's residence. He's warming himself next to a fire. And all of a sudden, a slave girl spots him and says, Ah, you're one of them. You're one of those, those men who are following Jesus, who, who's just been arrested. No, I'm sorry, but you got it wrong. I've never seen him before. Don't know who he is. You're mistaken. Then it happens again. Another servant girl. A slave girl. Ah, I can tell by your accent. You're one of them. Nope. Don't know him. Never seen him. You're mistaken. And then someone else says the same thing. And now he's cussing and swearing. And as soon as he says the words, I don't know what you're talking about, he catches Jesus. And their eyes meet. And Peter melts. The look that melted Peter. And he weeps bitterly and he runs out. And at that point... The rooster had crowed, and he remembered what the Lord said. And I can hear the voice of the self-righteous, judgmental Christian. Peter, you're a disgrace. You're a disgrace to the Christian faith. You're a disgrace to Jesus. You're a disgrace to God. You betrayed your own Lord not once, not twice, three times. And you didn't do it before a political official. And you didn't do it before a Jewish leader. You did it in front of a slave girl. Your days of being an apostle are over. You're not worthy to be a disciple of Jesus. You're not even worthy to be a Christian. You're disqualified from following the Lord and you have been disqualified from serving the Lord. Well, scene nine 
Jesus is taken and he is made to undergo the most horrendous, horrific, torturous death a mortal can ever know. And he took upon that cross every sin, every perpetration, every victimization. And he not only took the pain of the victim, he took the guilt of the perpetrator. And he nailed it to the cross. He became sin itself. And under the very weight of hell, he uttered, it is finished. And he died. He's put in a tomb, a sealed tomb. And let me tell you what the Scripture says. Listen to this. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so they might come and anoint the body of Jesus. Very early on the first day of the week, Sunday, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It's too heavy for us. We can't roll it away. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled away, even though it was extremely large. And entering into the tomb, they walk in, they see a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. That's an angel that they saw. Now listen to what the angel says. And let me remind you that angels are messengers of God. So if an angel speaks something, that's God speaking. That's God's thought. That's God's mind. And here's what the angel says. Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. But go tell His disciples and Peter... He's going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you will see him. Go tell my disciples and Peter. He didn't say, go tell his disciples and John. He didn't say, go tell his disciples and James. He didn't say, go tell his disciples and Thomas. He said, go tell his disciples and Peter. He underscores Peter. Why? Because he wants Peter to know that despite all the failures, all the blunders, all the sins, all the betrayal, all the disowning. I want Peter to know I'm alive and I have not disowned him. I have forgiven him. I have not rejected him. Let Peter know I'm alive and every sin that he has committed has been wiped clean. I don't even remember it. It's good news. But that's not the rest of the story. The first eyes to see the risen Christ were the eyes of a woman. And that's significant because a woman's testimony would not hold up in a Jewish court of law, and yet God chose a woman to see the resurrected Christ first. It was Mary. But you know who saw the resurrected Christ second? It was the eyes of the man who had betrayed his Lord. Peter saw him. And when he saw him, Jesus Christ, your Lord, never uttered a word about his betrayal or any other failure and mistake or sin. And a few weeks later, we see Peter saying, I'm going to go fishing. And some of the other disciples join him and they're out in a boat and they're fishing. And they spot someone on the shore. 
And he calls out to them. And John says, It's the Lord. And Peter, rash Peter, impetuous Peter, impulsive Peter, loose cannon on the deck Peter, (laughs) reckless Peter, he jumps in the water. He doesn't even have any clothes on. The Scripture says he grabs something because he was naked. He jumps in the water. I mean, the rest of the disciples are okay being in the boat. He jumps in the water and he swims to the Lord. The other disciples get there and now they're on the shore and they're having breakfast. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me more than the other disciples? And he uses the word agape, do you love me, which means total commitment unconditional love. Do you love me? Are you totally committed to me? Unconditional. And Peter kind of drops his head and he says, well, Lord, yes, you know I love you. Well, when Peter responds, he uses a different word for love. It's phileo. It means I'm your friend. I care about you. I have affection for you. He dare not climb to the height of that word agape. He can't rise to the bar that Jesus sets and say, yes, I agape, I love you totally and unconditionally with full devotion. Why? Because when we're still feeling guilty, our love for Christ withers. And then Jesus responds and says again, Peter, do you love me? Agape. And Peter responds, well, Lord, you know that I phileo, I love you like a friend. You're my friend. I have affection for you. And then Jesus says a third time. He's asking Peter to reaffirm his love for his Lord three times. Why three? To match the three denials. But this time, when Jesus says, do you love me? He drops the bar and meets Peter where he's at. And he uses the word phileo. Do you love me as a friend? Do you have affection for me? Isn't that awesome? He meets Peter where he's at. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, phileo. And then Jesus says, because you love me, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. What's happening? Jesus Christ is recommissioning Peter to share in his work of the great shepherd and take care of his people. Who? the man who disowned his Lord just a few weeks ago. He's calling him to the work of Jesus Christ. And not only that, he gives Peter this pile of failures, the keys to the kingdom of God, and it is Peter who on the day of Pentecost opens the doors of the kingdom to the Jewish people. And it is Peter in the house of Cornelius, who opens the door to the kingdom to the Gentiles. And sisters and brothers, history tells us that Peter was regarded as the greatest of all apostles. He's called the chief apostle. Who? The man who disowned his Lord and failed over and over and over and over again. What's my point? Who's Peter? You are Peter. And so am I. Every one of us has failed the Lord somewhere. Sometime. Every one of us has done things we regret. And let me remind you that when Jesus Christ broke loose through that tomb, 
His words through the angel was, go tell my disciples and Peter. And there was never one word, one breath about his failure ever. Instead, he recommissioned him to shepherd his own people. And Peter still had failures and he still made mistakes. But he followed his Lord even unto death. That's good news. Amen. Praise the Lord. And so, sisters and brothers, remember Peter. Go tell his disciples and Peter that I'm alive. Despite the catastrophic failure of Peter, Jesus Christ wanted Peter to know that he was loved and forgiven and valued. And I can hear the voice of the self-righteous Christian crumble in the presence of the mercy and love and compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And sisters and brothers, you can always shut that voice down by two words, and Peter. Amen. Jesus Christ is more merciful. Cristo Jesús es más misericordioso. More compassionate. Más co eh, compasionado. More loving. Más te ama tanto. More forgiving. Perdona tanto. Than most Christians are. Que, lo, que los mismos cristianos perdonan. And he is the Lord. Y él es el Señor. He is the one who is perfect. Él es el que es perfecto. I don't know about you. Yo no sé tú. But I can love a Lord like that. Pero puedo amar a un Señor así. I don't know about you, but I can rest secure in a Lord like that. No sé tú, pero puedo descansar en un Señor así. And sisters and brothers. Y hermanas y hermanos. Think of it this way. Piensen de esta manera. When Jesus came out of the grave. Cuando Jesús salió de la tumba. He had taken every sin you had ever committed. Había llevado todo pecado que tú has cometido. Past. Pasado. Present, presente future. y futuro and he nailed them to his cross. y los puso en la cruz and what he forgives, y lo que él he perdona even remember. no lo recuerda When he came out of that tomb, cuando salió de esa tumba the angel just as well could have said, el ángel pudo haber dicho Go tell my disciples. vayan a decirle a mis discípulos and y Caesar. a César Go tell my disciples vayan a decirle a mis discípulos Frank. y a Frank Go tell my disciples vayan a decirle a mis discípulos Jason. Jason. I'm not sure about him. Go tell my disciples. Vayan a decirle a mis discípulos. A Kim. Sisters and brothers. Hermanas y hermanos. I'll end with a story. Voy a terminar con una historia. In the 1950s. En los 1900s. There was a young man. Había un joven. Who was a Christian. Que era un cristiano. He was 21 years old. 21 años de edad. His name was Jack. Su nombre era Jack. He had a beautiful girlfriend. Tenía una novia muy bonita. Named Sally. Llamada Sally. Jack was very gifted. Jack tenía, era muy talentoso. He loved the Lord. Amaba al Señor. And he enrolled in seminary. Se inscribió en el seminario. And he was accepted. Y fue aceptado. And he was supposed to begin seminary in the summer. Y tenía que empezar las clases en el verano. Which was a few months away. Faltaban unos meses. Unfortunately, desafortunadamente, Sally became pregnant. Sally salió embarazada. They were not married. No estaban casados. The news got out. Las noticias se regaron. Jack wrote a letter to the dean. Y Jack le escribió una carta al decano. The dean of the seminary. Al decano de la universidad. He explained what happened. Explicó lo que pasó. He took full responsibility. Tomó responsabilidad. He was under the weight of guilt. Estaba bajo el peso de la culpabilidad. Condemnation. Condenación. And he knew that he probably would have been rejected. Y sabía que posiblemente lo iban a rechazar. By the seminary. Por el seminario. He was expecting. Estaba esperando. 
to receive a response recibir una respuesta that told him que le dijera, I'm sorry Jack lo sentimos, Jack, because of this sin por este pecado, we cannot receive you no podemos recibirte. remember Recuerden, this is the 1950s son los 1950. weeks passed Pasaron semanas. Jack did not hear anything. No escuchó nada, Jack. Finally, finalmente, a few weeks, una semana después, before the summer semester began, el semestre del verano empezó. Jack received a letter. Jack recibió una carta. It was from the dean. Era del decano. And he opened it up. La abrió. It's very short. Era muy corta. He said, "Dear Jack." Decía, apreciado Jack. Remember, recuerda, Peter, a Pedro. I will see you this summer. Te voy a ver. Este verano. Sisters and brothers, hermanas y hermanos, whatever happens to cualquiera te, cosa que te pase, whatever you end up doing, cualquier cosa que hagas, whatever you've done, cualquier cosa que hayas whatever hecho, regrets you carry, cualquier cosa que estás cargando que te arrepientas, you, déjame decirte, remember recuerda Peter, a Pedro and be free to love your Lord, y sé libre para amar a tu Señor because he loves you porque Él te ama more than you can imagine. más de lo que te puedes imaginar. And Peter tells us this y Pedro nos dice esto, in living color. En color a colores.